Just say thank you for your grace and thank you for the forgiveness that is in Christ and that you make all things new. Father, as we reach for our Bibles and study the Word together today, would you just, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the innate power of the Word, uh, just uh, work in us, renew us, encourage us, strengthen us. We need it and we want it. And so we will just sit quiet before you and let the Word do its work. Thank you for your good hand upon us in so many ways. Now just use this time to refresh us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're working our way through Matthew's Gospel, and we're in chapter 6, and on the Lord's Prayer, and I got stuck on a couple verses. They're hard verses. I wonder what they mean. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. I make a practice of listening uh, often to my preacher buddies on the internet. It is a blessing to be able to click on and hear what my friends, God has given so many good friends through the years who are in ministry. And it's always just a refreshing joy to click on and to listen to them. And often as I'm doing my email, I will have one ear attuned to a message on my laptop As I worked this week, I clicked on to uh, a friend's um, message uh, that he was sharing with the students in the chapel at the Appalachian Bible College earlier this month. And he was giving his testimony, and it was something I knew about, but I had never heard him share it. It's a most remarkable testimony. Um, Young man who, when he was a, a very young child, his mother died of a brain tumor, And as a result of that, as he shared his story, he um, spent a lot of time with some nearby friends, and the mom and dad of that family became very much like his second set of parents. When he was still just a young child, uh, 9, 10, 11 years old, that couple broke up and divorced, and it was ugly, and it was difficult for him, being raised by his father, his mother already passed away, now his his second set of parents were divided. And, and then one evening as he went on to share the testimony in much more detail, he, um, he was at his home. He was 11 years old. And the mother, his second mother, had come to pick up his friends that were at his house. And while she was there, the estranged husband came to the house looking for her. And, and my friend's dad, who was at the house at the same time, went to the door and And he tried to turn him away, said, yes, she's here right now picking up the kids, but she doesn't want to see you. You need to leave. He became very violent. And when my friend, my pastor friend's dad turned into the kitchen to call the police on the telephone, um, his second dad, who was so angry, pulled out his pistol and shot him in the back of the head and killed him, walked in the living room and shot and killed his former wife and left the house and there the children were. My friend went on to say that um, at that time he was not born again. He was not a Christian home and and doesn't sound like a Christian home, does it? Um, But he, he became a Christian. He accepted Christ as his Savior in his teen years. And he, he ended up in Bible college. And while he was at Bible college, he be, became convinced that he needed to go speak to that man who had murdered his father. And so he did. And he made arrangements. And he went to the place where he was. And he found out that that man had also, in the time that had lapsed, accepted Christ as his Savior. And my friend Matt gave his testimony and he said, I looked at him and I said, I forgive you. I forgive you. How do you do that? Do you know when we study God's word that we realize that a permeating theme in our New Testament is that believers in Christ are forgivers. It's not always easy. I'm confident that there are many stories represented here of offenses, deep-seated hurts. It might be a former spouse, it might be a child, it might be a father, a grandfather, a former employee. People who have wounded you, people who have done things that by all standards would fall into the category of unforgivable. Why would you do that to me? 
Things have happened to people, I'm sure, represented here in our congregation this morning that have completely altered the course and direction of your entire life. How do you forgive? How do you do that? Well, we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount and we're finding that, uh, that as our Lord teaches us and we're listening in as He teaches the multitude there, this great Sermon uh, on the Mount, we call it. We're in the middle of chapter 6 and just last week we went through the Lord's Prayer and as we move on, as the Lord's Prayer wraps up in this, this great framework or scaffolding, we called it, of a framework of prayer, He taught his disciples to pray like this. He didn't necessarily say, pray this, but pray like this. And we broke it down. We looked at it. I hope you found that helpful. And it was interesting to me that as the prayer wraps up in verse 13, but if you do not, uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, and then it has that ending that we know of, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever on men. You'll notice in the ESV, which we use from our pulpit here, that it's not included in that translation. And that's because in many of the older manuscripts, it's not there. It was probably added sometimes later. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's a question about whether it really belonged in the in the original manuscripts, okay? And so in the ESV, they've chosen not to put it in there, and you probably have a footnote to that end. In many of your Bibles, it might be there. But you notice then that before Jesus moves on, and remember in chapter 6, as it was introduced in verse 1 of chapter 6, that he's warning them, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And he's giving three illustrations. How we give to the poor, or almsgiving, how we pray, and how we fast. Three spiritual disciplines. Be careful, Jesus is saying, and he's warning, don't do it before men. Make sure you're doing that correctly. And that's why he was teaching them to pray and, and the topic of prayer came up because of the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees' abuse of prayer and using it as a public proclamation of the self and adulating themselves with their public prayers. And Jesus is, is putting a lid on that. But then notice for our text this morning in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus then says... Before he moves to fasting, the third illustration of a spiritual abuse that he's warning them about, he adds this footnote to the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He then repeats the same thing, only in the negative, to make the point, verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. And I say, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, what does this look like? You're standing before God someday and he gets the notebook open where he's been recording your life, right? He's flipping through and he's, oh, 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 I found one. You didn't, you didn't forgive this person. Hits the lever and you're on your way down the chute to hell. Is that what he's talking about? It's like, I mean, if you just take it at its face value, I take it that Jesus meant what he said. If you forgive, I'll forgive you. If you don't forgive then I don't forgive a little tit for tat from God there. And you just have to say to yourself, what's going on here? What does he mean? Well, it is a challenging warning from Jesus. Number one this morning in our outline is this is a warning from Jesus about the importance of forgiveness. Number one, a warning from Jesus about how important forgiveness is. Have you noticed that he didn't comment on any other part of the prayer? He commented on verse 12 in the prayer, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I take it that he, Jesus, in his omniscience as he teaches and, and with his great ability to always know his audience, he realizes that as he's teaching them to pray and he just taught them to say, Please, this, this level of forgiveness of sin and make sure there's no unconfessed sin in my life and make sure that I've forgiven those who've sinned against me, that I ask God for forgiveness in the same way that I have forgiven others and that maybe their brain got stuck on that point for a minute as they were thinking about some offender who was so heinous, they just haven't forgiven them. He then goes on and he doesn't footnote anything. He doesn't footnote anything about 
His will being done in heaven. He doesn't footnote about our daily bread. He doesn't footnote about forgiving our debts. He just footnotes, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then the warning, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so it raises the question to us, as Jesus warns us about the importance of being a forgiving people, the first question that comes to mind is, is is forgiveness before God conditional? And so let's clarify that for a minute and make sure we understand that there are a couple layers of forgiveness that are taught in the Bible. There's a couple different kinds of forgiveness that are taught in the Bible. And let's take just a minute and go to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesus. And let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let's just look quickly at a couple concepts here and make sure we we understand a little bit what we're talking about. Now, by nature, our message this morning is going to be fairly topical. We're going to have to search the scriptures a little bit. And we're starting out with this stunning statement by Jesus that makes it appear that for me to be forgiven, I've got to forgive anybody who's offended me or I'm in real problems. I have a real problem. And I want to make clear, first of all, that you understand that That Jesus isn't putting a condition on our salvation. He's not putting a condition on our salvation in the Sermon on the Mount here. In the Sermon on the Mount, He's talking to people who are a part of His kingdom, people who are His followers, people who who are part of, in essence, you would think of His church. These are God's people. And in the Sermon on the Mount, He's talking about distinctive ways that believers in Christ or God's people live. This is how God's people live. This is how we are identified in the world. And we're not the same as anyone else. But what he's not talking about is that if you do this, you can go to heaven. Alright? Because we've emphasized that over and over, how even in the Sermon on the Mount so far, Jesus talked about if your if your righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees, then you cannot enter His kingdom. That Jesus' whole point is that you can't do this on your own. That is a righteousness that we cannot muster up on our own. And we have to receive a righteousness from God Himself out of His love and kindness. And that's what brings salvation. That Jesus alone could keep the law. And that when we go to the cross and bow before our Heavenly Father at the foot of the cross, that we are acknowledging that Jesus has substituted in for us and done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And when we admit our sinfulness, then we come in humility to the cross and we acknowledge to God that we are sinners, that He gives us a righteousness that is not our own, that comes straight from Christ. We, in essence, it's a great exchange. It's why we love to sing about the cross. It's why we love to sing about amazing grace, because it's the great exchange where I exchange all of my rot, all of my sinfulness, all of my inability to do anything right in the eyes of a holy God. And for free, He gives me the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He loved us so much that He gave Jesus Christ to die in my place. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, notice what it says in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Okay, so make sure you understand that Jesus is not putting some kind of a a ladder up against the sideboard of heaven. And if you can pull it off, you can climb that ladder and get into heaven on your own. And that one of the things you have to do is you have to forgive anybody that ever offended you. And therefore, God will forgive you. And he's kind of like work your way into his pleasure. Listen, it's all about his grace. You know what grace is? Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And we are sinners, we're born sinners, and we sin because we're sinners. And we're sinners because we sin. And the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And did you notice that it is a gift of God? And that Ephesians 1, 7 says that it's through His blood, this forgiveness of our sins or trespasses, and it's according to the riches of His grace. It's a gift, and if we could work our way there, it would not no longer be a gift, it would be wages, 
So it's a free gift and it's grace and grace is receiving what I do not deserve. And if I could get my way into heaven by forgiving everybody who ever offended me and pleasing God and somehow uh, leveraging God into forgiving me then so that this is all about my salvation, then it would no longer also be grace. It would be works. And when we flip the page and go to Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, we see clearly that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's no works here. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There it is again. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You cannot go around and proclaim that you are the greatest forgiver that ever lived and therefore God will forgive you and therefore you've got your ticket to heaven. It's not how it works. So Jesus is talking about something else here. By the way, have you been to the cross? Has the heinousness of your own sinfulness and what an offense that is to a holy God ever overwhelmed you? Have you ever worried about that? That I am a sinner and God cannot look at me? Can I tell you that you need to come to the cross today? And that it's at the cross, at the cross where you'll see the light. And it's where God's love comes and connects, where a loving, holy God connects with a sinful people. That great exchange takes place. We lay down the burden of our sin and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, apart from which there is no forgiveness of sin, covers us, washes away our sin, and we are forgiven positionally and judicially. We are then declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's called justified. That is a positional standing. That is a once and done thing. You are his child. You can no longer not be his child, but you can offend him, can't you? You don't lose your name. You don't lose your position, but relationship is broken. Do you realize you can do things? It's called sin. Even though you're born again Christian and you're part of the body of Christ and you're part of his church, you're living under the umbrella of what we would call his kingdom and Christ's kingdom, and he cannot be happy with you. That how we live does matter. And I think what Jesus is talking about here and instructing us, he's emphasizing what an important matter this issue of forgiveness is at a relational level. It's not a judicial vertical level. It's a horizontal relational level among his people. And his whole point is, is that my people are forgivers. So the first thing we have this morning is this warning from Jesus that forgiveness really matters. The second thing I want us to look at this morning is a question from Peter. Number two, a question from Peter. So let's move from Jesus' warning to Peter's question. And this is found in Matthew chapter 18. And when we talk about this subject, this is a very clear passage on this important matter of forgiveness because Peter does something for us that is very helpful. He asks Jesus a great question, and Jesus answers the question. So we're indebted to Peter for asking good questions. And here it is in Matthew chapter 18. It begins with verse 21. Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 18, and when we get there, you'll, we will break it down. But starting with verse 15 of chapter 18, and if you were in past, if you've been in Pastor Everett's Sunday school class, where they're dealing with uh, all these kinds of issues and getting your closet cleaned out and stuff from, you know, not letting sin fester. One of the things I think they've just been talking about is the Matthew 18 passage. What do I do if somebody sins against me in the church and I have a relationship with people and then they've offended me, they've sinned against me? How does that look? What, What do we do about that? And Jesus has just been teaching that. And Peter then asked a great question. All right. He says in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, all right, if I'm supposed to forgive people who sin against me, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Isn't that a great question? If you sin against me and I have to forgive you, how many times do I have to put up with this? And Peter has a number in mind. Peter says seven times. You know, you can kind of see Peter's thinking, You know those little pencil lines we make and then the little slash angle line? That's five. (laughs) Oh, that's six, buddy. Now seven, eight, bam! You know, it's like, that's it. 
it's over. Seven times. How many times do you expect me to forgive you? And Jesus, playing on the word, playing on the suggestion by Peter, says, some of your Bibles might say, no, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven, or the ESV um, and the NIV say 77 times. It's a play on words. Again, Jesus isn't saying, oh, Peter, get you a little booklet, a little pencil, and go around, make your hash marks, 69, 72, 74, 75, 76. You better watch it, buddy. 77. No, you know, he's just saying, Peter, we don't keep track. Peter, Peter, we don't keep track. My people are forgivers. You always forgive. So we move from a warning from Jesus that if we don't forgive relationally, if we are not careful to forgive others, that when we sin against God on an ongoing basis, that's kind of the first John 1, 9 concept, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, that we can create a relational barrier with God in our everyday living by not forgiving people around me and that God looks at me and says, you want forgiven on a daily basis. If you don't forgive, I, I don't reciprocate that forgiveness. I don't know how he keeps track of all that, but I know that I really don't like being in that position. And that's exactly what Jesus says, right? And so Peter asked the question. And then now, number three, we have a story from Jesus. So we move from a question by Peter to a story from Jesus. And Jesus is still answering the question. And this is that classic story of the two debtors. It wasn't that many weeks ago um, when we were in the Beatitudes that we bumped into this at least. But let me read it quickly. And this is what it says. Jesus now responding to Peter's question that he is answered by saying, we don't keep track, Peter. We just forgive. Therefore, verse 23, Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. All right. All you need to know is that 10,000 talents in this day is an astronomical amount of money. It's gabillions. It is unpayable. It is an unpayable amount of money. No, it's like, it's like a national debt level. It's not something an individual would ever own, would ever owe. So Jesus is using exaggeration and the idea here of embellishing the story to make his point. And this man owed so much, verse 25, he could not pay. And so the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, please have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, it's a beautiful verse. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Bam! You go from being overwhelmingly in debt with nothing you can do to ever pay it back. And the master looks at you and says with one word, it's forgiven. Forgiven means to throw way far away. It means to separate it. Sometimes in the Bible, it illustrates it by saying as far as the east is from the west or as deep as the deepest part of the sea. It's gone. It's been thrown away. It's no longer relevant. It's gone. That's a great position that this guy is in. An unpayable debt, and the master just says, it's gone. So what does he do? He goes home, and on his way home, look what it says in verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, that would be like a $20 bill, okay, just a very manageable amount of money, a very common amount of money that you might end up, you know, he missed supper or something, and he borrowed a $20 bill for gas on his way home. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me. I don't have the money on my right now, but I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what he had, had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Okay, he's still his servant. He still has a relationship with him. He doesn't put him in outer darkness. He's just like, we are not on good terms right now, buddy. 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's a, that's the takeaway line from this passage. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, mercy is the flip side of the coin from grace. Grace is when you receive something you do not deserve. Mercy is when you do not receive what you do deserve. You got the difference? And so he says, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. We're dealing with relationships here. He's even talking about this as my brother. He doesn't get cast into outer darkness, but he is on the, he is no longer in good standing with the master and the master is going to deal with him in some significant, difficult way, removing his blessing from him. Somehow he's removed his blessing. And it says that when we do this, God will do this with us in the same way. I don't know what it's like when God puts us in jail. We're heaven bound, we're saved, we can be confident in our security in Christ, but relationally, we are not in good standing with our Heavenly Father when we do this. And here's the whole point. The the first guy who owed an unpayable amount of money represents a bankrupt sinner, doesn't he? I mean, that's us standing before God, unable to pay a debt. The debt of our sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. And we have no option. And it's just like you are condemned to prison for the rest of your life. And so all you can do is humble yourself like the meek person he called us to be. That all of God's people are in, who identify with Christ. You, you don't come there unless you're humble. Only in meekness do you come before the Lord and you pound your breast and you say... I am the worst of sinners and I can do nothing with that debt. Would you just please forgive me? And then there's that glorious day when the master looks at us and he says, it's gone, forgiven. I took took the credit from my son's account and I loaded your card with it and there's no record of your bankrupt debt records anywhere. Right? And so the whole point of the passage is that if you've gone before a holy God and you couldn't do a thing about your debt and you couldn't do a thing about what you owed him in the offenses of a holy God and he looked at you and he said, forgiven, how can you go grab your brother by the neck and try to rank, get a $20 bill out of him? God's people are forgivers. And you say, oh, Pastor Van, it ain't a $20 bill that that guy offended me about. It was to the deepest part of the core of my being that I've been offended. Do you think that anything that could happen to you is a deeper offense than what could happen to God and the offense of His Son Jesus being nailed to the cross? Is there anything that compares to the heinous, ugly filth of sin in the presence of a holy God? The Bible says He can't even look at it. can't look at it. And we've been forgiven that which we could not pay in and of ourselves, this debt that we then, in turn, forgive others when they offend us. So we've had a warning from Jesus that we must be forgivers or else. We've had a question from Peter that has clarified from Jesus that this forgiveness is something we don't keep a record of. We've had a story from Jesus that acknowledges that relationally... We are in a position only to forgive. We have, there is no record in the Bible ever that gives us permission not to forgive. Keep that in mind. The fourth thing I want us to then to move to is the teaching of Paul. All right, let's go to Paul and let's see if he can clarify things because there are so many questions that come to mind when we deal with this topic. And let's go to the most familiar verse of all, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, 32. And this is a verse that we often, I mean, if you think of it as a kid's Sunday school verse, get over that because this is a key verse in the Christian life. And it's for all believers in Christ. And you'll notice that it's in the context of, the, of Jesus teaching the dynamics, excuse me, of Paul teaching the, the Ephesian believers the dynamics of what the Christian life looks like on a day-to-day basis. 
He's dealing with all kinds of things. He's talking about in verse 25 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. You can't lie anymore. You only speak the truth. You can't be angry in your sin. Don't sin and be angry. 26. Don't let the sun go down on your your anger. Don't give a foothold to the devil in verse 27. No longer steal. Be totally honest. Get your work ethic cranking. Share with those who are in need. Verse 29, no corrupting communication can come out of your mouths. Only build each other up with, your, with proper words and give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, you're sealed by Him. You're part of the body of Christ. You cannot live the way you used to live. Believers in Christ don't live that way. And let all bitterness, this verse applies... Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you read Colossians chapter 3 and uh, around verse 14, he says exactly the same thing in essence. Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. You don't have to turn there. It is, it is an, an essentially a parallel passage to this. The Apostle Paul saying that as you live the Christian life, you are to be characterized by kindness and forgiveness. And there's no exceptions. He doesn't give us an out. You will find nowhere in your New Testament where you are allowed to not forgive regardless of the level of the offense. And there is an interesting story that takes place in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if you don't want to turn there, just let me read it to you. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this to the Ephesian believers, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another, there was, in closing out his writing to Timothy in the second letter, 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, he talks about a guy who he's not too happy with. A guy who has offended him. It would appear that he's not part of the body of Christ, that he's not born again. He professes to be, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Now notice what he does. He doesn't curse him. He doesn't put him down. He doesn't say he wants to spit beech nut in his eye and shoot him with his old 45. He says, God will judge him. And he says, Beware of him yourself. God, the Lord, will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's the major clue that he's not a born-again Christian. Back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. I just thought it was interesting in being reminded of that verse that the Apostle Paul didn't spew out bitterness towards someone who had evidently done him a great deal of harm and damage. And he just said, and this is a clue for all of us in dealing with people who have offended us. He just said, the Lord will judge him. That's part of the release of the burden of the offense when somebody, the Lord will judge him. Now, here's what a very important part of our message, and I want you to listen closely. In chapter 4, verse 32, when Paul says, we're to be characterized by kindness, tenderheartedness, and we are to forgive one another. Notice now that he, finally, number 5, he gives us God as our model, the model of God as a forgiver, the model of God. So we've gone from a warning from Jesus about how important this is, a question uh, from Peter about the extensiveness of forgiveness, a story from Jesus illustrating that we are to be characterized because of how much God has forgiven us. We are to be characterized by forgiving others. We've looked just briefly at the teaching of Paul, and he emphatically declares that we are to be kind, tenderhearted forgivers And finally, we have God as our model, the model of God as the forgiver. Now, how does God forgive? That's a very important question as we wrap up our message today, because if I understand how God forgives, then I know what forgiveness looks like in my life, right? Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, one thought that comes to my mind right away is that there's no sin God won't forgive. It's an an unconditional forgiveness, isn't it? 
But what does it look like when God forgives? How does that look? There are several passages of Scripture that we could look at to reinforce this, but let's look at a most familiar one and just flip to Luke chapter 15. We'll not read the passage. Let me just remind you of it. It's part of a trilogy. Luke chapter 15 is is three stories that make up one story that Jesus told. This is the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and what we call the lost son. And this is the punk son of this wonderful old man who's very wealthy and has a big farm and ranch and this no good for nothing kid that you just want to smack comes up to his father spits in his face says he wishes he were dead give me my inheritance and off he goes his father does it his father lets him go you ever notice how God will let you go He'll never lose track of you, but he'll let you go climb fences if you want. You better watch what you want on the other side of the fence. And he goes and he spends his money in riotous living, right? Remember that? Hoorah! Off we go. And then his money runs out and then he finds himself eating muck out of a pig's pen, pig's trough. And then it hits him one day and listen to what it says. But he came to himself, Luke 15, 17, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, notice this is important, his father was waiting for him. His father was completely open to him. His father was willing and ready and prepared to forgive. But forgiveness had not taken place yet. Forgiveness took place when he came to him and in compassion the father embraces him and kisses him and the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And forgiveness took place and restoration took place, right? Listen, there is no account in Scripture where God, as he models forgiveness for us, forgives unrepentant sinners. There is no model where forgiveness takes place until there has been a confession and a repentance and a rejection of the sin. You can see this over and over again. Somebody will point out and say, oh, what about Jesus on the cross, though? And even Stephen, when he was stoned, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you think all those Roman soldiers and all those Sanhedrin and all the Pharisees who nailed Jesus to the cross and all the venomous crowd that were there are going to be in heaven because Jesus gave a carte blanche total con- uh, forgiveness from the cross? I don't think that's what he meant at all. He said, Father, don't condemn them because of this. Keep the doors of forgiveness open. Allow them to be forgiven. That's the only, that's the closest line you're going to get. But everywhere else in Scripture, in Jeremiah chapter 3, Matthew 23, Acts chapter 2, Luke 15, Psalm 32, when David sinned after Bathsheba, probably after he wrote Psalm 51. You know what it says in Psalm 32, it's a great verse, verse 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave. Now listen, forgiveness takes place when the offender goes to the offended one and asks for forgiveness, repenting of their sin. Then you say, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to forgive in my heart, right? You can think of it that way. In being prepared to forgive, you can think of it as though you've already forgiven them, but don't believe that forgiveness has taken place until there's repentance. So then you ask the question, well, what do I do if somebody has offended me? I want to forgive them. It hurts deeply. It's bitter. It's angry. But what do I do when someone has offended me? They've sinned against me, but they have not repented or asked of of forgiveness of me. They say, well, I've forgiven them and it's gone. It really isn't. You're in a good position to forgive if you can say that. And I don't think it's bad to think of it as though you've forgiven them, but If God is our model of forgiveness, forgiveness takes place when repentance happens. 
an admission of this sinfulness. So let me make some suggestions about how to think practically if you've been deeply sinned against or offended and that person has not asked for forgiveness. Number one, you need to recognize, number one, recognize the difference between the devastating hurt of sinful behavior and a spirit of bitterness and hatred. Let me say that again. If somebody has sinned against you, and forgiveness has not taken place because there's been no repentance, the first thing you need to keep in mind is you need to differentiate between the incredible pain of, and devastation and hurt of sinful behavior, that there's a difference between that and bitterness and hatred. What do I mean? I've had people in my office with tears flowing and the, the, the horrible things that have gone on in their past by people who they should have been able to trust is unforgivable, in essence. It's not wrong to hurt deeply. Sin hurts. Sin is painful. Sin is devastating. But, and, and it definitely altered your life. You're not supposed to be normal after some of the things that people have had done to them. That's just the way it is. You can trust God to heal you, but there's a difference between the hurting of the pain of sin and you allowing hatred and bitterness to dwell in you. We never have permission to hate or be bitter. Doesn't mean you're not going to have to struggle. Doesn't mean you're not going to have to process it. It hurts. Sin hurts, but doesn't give you permission for bitterness. Secondly, never allow an offender's sin to be perceived as a license for you to sin. Okay, you say, this guy sinned against me and he's never asking for forgiveness, so therefore, man, I'm going to take a Louisville slugger to his headlights. Right? Somebody should write a song about that. <laughs> no! God's people are forgivers and we never have a right to sin regardless of how deeply we're hurt. An offender's sin against me never gives me license to sin against them. Alright? That's hard teaching. That's reality. Number three, here's what I do. I can say, I can call this forgiveness if I want to. I'll give you permission for that. I don't think it's bad. We're kind of working semantics here a little bit. If you want to say you've forgiven them in your heart, that's fine. Here's what I call it. Committing them to God for His justice. I have clarified in my mind, and I have taken this person. I don't hate them. I no longer want to poke their eyeballs out. I no longer want to push them off a cliff. I know, I, you know what? I commit them to God for His justice. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 17. That's what Paul said about Alexander the coppersmith, right? This guy's done me much damage, but I've just kind of put him in the cubbyhole that he's God's, and God's going to take care of it. It's not my job. It's not my job. Number four, I embrace the law of love, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. And that's good advice when somebody has offended you and sinned against you and reconciliation has not taken place because there's been no forgiveness, and that is stop cursing. Stop mouthing off about them. Stop talking about them. Commit them to God's justice and wait on the Lord for His work in their lives. But you, number four, commit to the law of love. The law of love is that I will bless those who persecute me and I will not curse them. Number five, I will also pray for them. Matthew 5, 43. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The law of love kicks in and I have compartmentalized them and I'm not eaten up with bitterness because I've committed them to God's justice. I am entering in and committing to the law of love and I am doing good to those who persecute me and I'm praying to, to, for those. And then finally, number six, you be ready at a moment's notice to forgive. Be ready to offer that forgiveness. And this is where we could say, I have come to a place where I've forgiven them in my heart. And that way, if they come to you and they say, I have sinned against you. And remember, they can do that seven times, right? You forgive them. So let's wrap it up with a few more concluding thoughts. Let me kind of summarize what I've been trying to say, okay, with concluding thoughts. Number one, 
Number one, there is no biblical basis that forgiveness takes place apart from a repentant offender. I find no biblical evidence that forgiveness takes place apart from a repentant offender. Now, Stephen, when he was being stoned in the early church in Acts, said out loud, Father, do not hold this offense against them. You could argue that you know he had forgiven them in his heart, but forgiveness had not taken place on their part, and restoration had not taken place. Reconciliation had not taken place. Peter had his heart immediately. He went from zero to a hundred on the scale of having his brains bashed in by their bricks and rocks, being able to say and process it all. I'm not going to be bitter. The law of love is going to kick in. I'm not going to curse them. I've given them over to God's justice. And in fact, I'm going to pray for those who persecute me. God, don't even hold this against them. Wow. Now, I'm not saying you can do that like Stephen can in in less than five minutes. Go from, "Uh uh-oh, these people are going to kill me, to saying, Lord, please excuse my buddies here today as they kill me. I'm not saying you can do that overnight. And I'm not saying you don't need to meet with your elders or your counselor. You don't need to be on your face before the Lord, processing the emotion of the incredible depths of the devastation of what sin can do to people, even in the body of Christ. But I am saying there is no record of forgiveness taking place until there's a repentant offender. This applies to us who have offended other people, by the way. That we go and ask for forgiveness. Don't just sweep it under the rug. And even if somebody's done a hundred wrongs to your one wrong, take care of your one wrong. You have an obligation to go ask them for forgiveness. Who do you think you are? Secondly, there is no biblical basis... To believe that forgiveness is ever to be withhold from a repentant offender. Secondly, when we read our Bible, there is never an occasion where I'm allowed not to forgive. Even 77 times. Somebody asked me once, well, does that mean I have to be friends with them? And I would say, No. You know, Paul said in Romans 12, as much as is possible, get along with all people. As much as is possible. That means there's a couple that you can't get along with. Doesn't mean you have to go in and, and, and buy land with them and have agreements. It doesn't mean that you even really trust them. It might even be when they come around, you stand with your back against the wall because that person has stuck you so many times in the back and 77 times you've forgiven them and committed them to God's justice and, and you're really struggling to trust them. But you, when they come to you and say, hey, I'm really sorry that happened, you have to say, I forgive you and you have to mean it. That's it. God's people are forgivers. That's who we are. Do you realize what this does to a watching world? Do you realize how puzzling this is to the natural man? Do you realize that this is a spiritual work and a spiritual obligation? So number one, no biblical basis that forgiveness takes place apart from a repentant offender. Number two, forgiveness is never to be withheld from a repentant offender, so you can't hold grudges. Number three, forgiveness is always a prerequisite to reconciliation. Number three, forgiveness is always a prerequisite to reconciliation. Two parties that are at odds cannot reconcile without forgiveness. It will not happen. Fourthly, repentance is always a prerequisite to forgiveness. Repentance is always a prerequisite to forgiveness. So here's how it works. I've sinned against this person. I really have sinned. I go about living my life. The Spirit of God convicts me. I've sinned. That person has processed and put me in God's justice cubicle. That person has implemented the law of love. That person is praying for me. It may have taken years to get there, but they're there. That's what they're called to. I come overwhelmed with the reality that I have sinned against this person. And forgiveness cannot take place until I repent of my sin. First with God. I now repent of my sin. Then I go to that person and I confess and repent to them and I ask them for forgiveness. Forgiveness takes place and now reconciliation has taken place and that's a beautiful thing. And we are committed to reconciliation. We are always committed to reconciliation. That's how it works. 
Conviction, the sin takes place. Conviction comes upon us. I admit and repent of my sin before God. I go to the individual and confess before them and repent it to them. And I ask them for forgiveness. They forgive me in the same way that God has forgiven them and, the, and God has forgiven me. And I have repented and now reconciliation has taken place. That's the process. And you can't get it in any other order. It cannot happen in any other order. Can't happen. Repentance is always a prerequisite to forgiveness. And finally, forgiveness is a spiritual act of obedience. It is not a feeling. Forgiveness and forgiving someone is a spiritual act of obedience. It is not a feeling. If you can find scripture verses to contradict the message today, please show me. You know, I'd much rather just um, take a stick to somebody who's offended me than forgive them. What about you? Then I realized I had an unforgivable debt. I had a completely unforgivable, unpayable, unpayable, unforgivable. I was going to be locked away in the dungeon of sin forever and all eternity and have to pay the price of my own sin. And the master looked at me and he said, you are unequivocally forgiven by my grace. That's it. And I even love you. And based on that reality alone... I am called to be a forgiver. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you feel like it. I'm not saying you don't have to work through a lot of issues in your life. I'm just telling you, that's what Jesus is teaching. If you forgive other people, I'll forgive you and we all get along. And in the way that you don't forgive other people, relationally, that's how bad days with God go with me. I don't forgive you. I'm not sure exactly how that works its way out. But that's what Jesus taught. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, we want to be so filled with love for Christ and committed to the truth and given over to the obedience of Scripture that we have the willingness to humble our hearts and bow our heads and ask you to help us live this out. Father, there are people here who are so deeply hurt. And there are times in our lives when we've been so mistreated and mishandled and abused. And the scars will never go away and we will never forget it. And only one day in your presence will you wipe it all completely clean in us. But Father, would you help us implement the obedience of forgiveness? Would you help us to please commit people to your justice system, not ours? And would you help us to just be characterized by this great quality of being a forgiver in the same way that you have forgiven us, that we would forgive others. Father, there's folks here that need encouragement today to live this out, and so would you please empower them and help them. Thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that you are a loving Heavenly Father, and we can come to you in prayer and say, Our Father which art in heaven, help us. Father, help us also to receive a forgiveness from you that looks like the forgiveness we've given others. And that it would be a pure and godly forgiveness. And may a watching world see a reconciling church as a testimony of the gospel, changing everything about us. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.